CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Himalaya. Betsy, Justin, this week's episode feels personal for me, and I think for a lot of people my age more generally. Yeah, Naz, didn't you graduate in the 2008 financial crisis? I feel like for a lot of us, our careers never really took off and that we never really recovered. And now we've been hit with another recession, but none of us feel like we got over the first recession in the first place. And Naz, people who were looking to launch their careers amidst the coronavirus recession, they really feel your pain too. Research shows that when you graduate into a recession like you did, it can have long-lasting negative effects. So you were quite unlucky, just like the people who graduated in 2020 are quite unlucky. You know, people who graduated a few years after you, Naz, don't have as much of a long-lasting negative impact from that financial crisis as you have. Recessions can have such a big impact on both our individual lives and on society as a whole. Overall, the economy eventually recovers, but some people get left behind. And it takes some time to get out of a recession and back into an economic expansion. Economists call these periods of booms and busts business cycles. And that's our topic on this week's episode of Think Like an Economist with me, Betsy Stevenson. And I'm Justin Walters. We're teaching you the super tools of economics that can transform your life and hopefully help you navigate a recession or two. Nestor and Tavakoli Farah is with us. Intuitively, we all know what a recession is. It's a period in which people can't find work. It's also a period in which everyone's really fearful of being laid off. So most people aren't actually going to lose their job during a recession, but a lot of people are going to be fearful that they might because their employer seems to be struggling. Businesses just aren't selling as much as they once were, and that often means they have to cut their costs by cutting hours or even laying off workers. So in personal terms, a recession can mean that it's harder to find work. And that economic turmoil creates a lot more uncertainty. A recession is a period of declining economic activity. It's that period when the economy is actually getting smaller. By smaller, we literally mean that GDP is shrinking so that we're producing less, we're consuming less, we're earning less than we were before on average. The pandemic's the most dramatic recession we've ever had. Usually recessions start when something goes wrong and then they snowball as people keep cutting back, which means people buy less, so businesses produce less, so people earn less, so people buy less, and so it goes on. The coronavirus recession was incredibly rapid and dramatic. We just put the brakes on the economy. A lot of people think that that's because governments shut things down, but it wasn't actually just that. Research shows that people started to withdraw due to fear. People were fearful of getting sick, so they stopped going out and spending money. And they were fearful of losing their income, so they cut back on spending just in case. Most people cut back in a whole bunch of different ways. And so on aggregate, it led to a dramatic decline in spending in early and mid-2020 in just about every country. One way you might think about this is the virus was like a tax on every face-to-face interaction. Of course, it wasn't a tax you paid in dollars and cents. It was a tax you paid in terms of risk to your health. Prior to the virus... 
the economy was humming along. And then, bam, the virus really brought the economy to its knees. For years, people had been asking me in interviews if the economic expansion could keep going as the economy had been really going pretty steadily for a decade. And the answer is always that booms don't die of old age. They get murdered. And in our recent case, our last boom was murdered by COVID. That's pretty traumatic imagery, Betsy. Let's go back for a minute, because to understand all this, you need to know what an economic expansion is. An expansion is the opposite of a recession. It's the period in which GDP is growing or getting larger. Now, here's the tricky bit. Notice that our definition of a recession, when an economy is shrinking, or an expansion, when it resumes growth again, those definitions are all about the change in the size of the economy. So neither the words recession nor expansion tell us much about whether we're in economic good times or bad times, which would be statements that are more about the levels of income and employment. So the coronavirus pandemic happened and there were recessions in countries all over the world. But towards the end of 2020, a lot of countries started recovering and there were expansions. However, in the US, there were still 10 million fewer jobs than right before the pandemic. That still sounds pretty bad. It is bad, Naz. And the point is that an expansion doesn't mean that things are great or even that we've returned to a previous level. It's simply a period of increasing economic activity. So can we ever fully recover? That's one question. Can we get back to where we were before? Another way to think about it is to compare how much we're producing relative to how much we could sustainably produce. So compared to where we could be, I feel like you're hinting at the output gap. Right. The output gap is the difference between our actual level of output and a guess as to a sustainable level of output, which is an idea that economists call potential output. Potential output is what a country can produce when all its resources are being used fully, but they're not being overused or stretched too thin or creating the sorts of bottlenecks that might lead to inflation. Figuring out potential output is a little tricky, and we're all guessing a bit about what's sustainable. But we know the factors that determine potential output. There are things like how many workers we have, what kind of skills they have, what kind of capital and equipment and technological know-how we have available to us. The same factors that determine a country's long-run growth trajectory, which we talked about in our episode on economic growth, also determine its potential output. So long-run economic growth is determined by fundamental factors, like how many workers and machines we have. But business cycles are like the ups and downs and other deviations from that long-term trend. That's how a lot of economists think about it. It's a useful way to frame things because it gives us a distinction between the long run, which is about those fundamental factors, and the short run, in which business cycles can cause these sometimes violent changes in the state of the economy. I'm not sure you could always fully separate the short run and the long run because things like the pandemic might cause some longer run damage as well, but it's a useful intellectual starting point. And business cycles are called cycles because sometimes we are below potential and sometimes above it. And so people see like a sine wave around potential output, but they're not really cycles at all. There's no rule that says that the economy will rise or fall every five or seven or 10 years. Truth is, expansions just keep going until they end. And that could be a year, three years, five years, 10 years. Or in Australia, the last expansion lasted 30 years. So business cycles aren't really cycles. Because we don't know when either a recession or an expansion will end. We've just heard that business cycles aren't regular, but do they have any common characteristics? 
yes, there are some common characteristics. I mean, no two business cycles are the same, but they have some certain similarities. You know, recessions tend to be short and sharp. Expansions tend to be long and gradual. Since World War II, the average recession has lasted only a year, whereas expansions have lasted five years on average. Some are shorter, some are a lot longer. Remember that Betsy said pretty graphically that expansions get murdered. Well, there are lots of things that can bring the good times to an end and bring on a recession. Naz, you graduated into a sudden financial crisis. Oil price hikes and stock market bubbles bursting can end the good times. A sharp shift in productivity growth or big changes in interest rates have also initiated recessions. The other common feature of business cycles is that expansions and recessions affect many parts of the economy. Nearly every industry suffers in a recession. But there are some differences in that some sectors get hit harder, and that can vary across recessions. I think we really saw that in 2020 because it was our first ever service sector-led recession. And that's actually one reason the 2020 recession was so hard on women and meant so many jobs lost were lost among women because women are disproportionately likely to work in the service sector. By contrast, in 2008, the financial crisis caused the financial sector to create it. Now, you might think that's part of the service sector, but that credit crunch led the goods-producing sector to really fall apart. Yeah, that's why people called it a man session in 2008, because financial sector plus goods-producing sector equals a lot of men losing their jobs. Blokes without jobs. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Is there one statistic you can look at to assess how the economy is doing? My one piece of advice is there is not one statistic. There are many. You could say there's thousands. We think there's at least 10, or at least I can try to help you here, Naz, and get the list down to 10. The most important answer to your question is don't look at just one indicator if you want to understand how the economy is doing. Okay, to start, people talk about confidence data being a leading indicator. What do we mean by leading indicators? A leading indicator is something that tends to move in advance of the rest of the economy. So business confidence and consumer confidence tell you whether business owners are likely to hire and whether consumers are likely to spend. If you tell someone tonight that you're really worried about the state of the economy and what that might mean for your job, you're probably not going to go out next week on a big spending spree. Leading indicators tend to be real-time data that tells us what's happening right now or likely to happen in the near future. Lagging indicators tend to follow business cycle movements with some delay. 
So when businesses are telling us that they're worried, they might not have yet let anyone go or stopped hiring, but their worry means that they might soon. So then we might see unemployment start to rise. Unemployment typically follows declines in sales. In other words, it lags those declines in sales. Yeah, that makes sense because I'd like to think that if I ran a business, I'd be reluctant to fire people unless I knew for sure that business was bad. Now, you talked about indicators. Let's go through the 10 that you follow. Yeah, so real GDP is clearly the big thing to look at. A recession's a period of declining GDP, so in some sense, that's the only thing you need. But it's a really lagging indicator, at least in how we measure it. Remember that real GDP measures total production, total spending, and total output across the whole economy. And by real, we mean adjusted for price changes related to inflation. But here's the thing. It's really hard to measure it. In fact, it can take five years to get a precise, good measure. In 2008, lots of people were confused why unemployment was so high given the measured decline in GDP. We got the answer years later. GDP had declined more than we realized. Because it's really hard to measure output, particularly when there's a lot of changes going on, you might want to look at a different way of measuring GDP. Remember, GDP is total spending, but it's also total income. So there's a measure called gross domestic income, which measures GDP by adding up people's incomes. How is gross domestic income different from what GDP measures? Conceptually, they're the same thing, but it relies on different data sources and there can be some discrepancies. Early reports of what's going on with income can actually be more reliable than the data we get on spending, which is why it can be useful to look at GDI. Employment and unemployment gives us a more timely look at what's happening. There are a lot of different ways that we can measure employment and unemployment. One way is to actually count how many jobs people have. And in the U.S., we call that the non-farms payrolls jobs. And that number gets released every month. And why do we focus on non-farm payrolls? Because the ups and downs of what happens on the farm has a lot to do with droughts and floods. And so it doesn't tell us much about the broader business cycle. Okay, that's interesting. And we have indicator number four next. That's the unemployment rate. If you remember, we talked about unemployment in an earlier episode. The unemployment rate tells us the share of the labour force who don't have jobs, but who want a job and are actively looking for one. So the unemployment rate is an indicator of excess capacity or workers that we're not using. Our next indicator is related to unemployment, and that's initial unemployment claims. Yeah, these tell you something about how many people have just lost their jobs. And it's a really handy indicator. The data is released weekly. So you can see those trends pretty quickly. We're on to indicator number six, and it's one I mentioned before, business confidence. We can measure this from surveys that just ask managers about their plans over the next few months, about whether they're going to change production or hire more people, stuff like that. The other important confidence indicator is consumer confidence, those surveys that ask people how optimistic they are about the economy. That gives us that really useful indicator about what their spending patterns might be looking like over the next few months. Another indicator is the inflation rate. And why inflation? I get the sense that so far in these macro episodes, we're trying to get inflation out of the picture when we deal with data. Yeah, but here we're thinking about what the inflation rate can tell us beyond just the fact that prices are rising. If you run a business and sales are booming and you can't produce more to meet demand, it's likely you'll go ahead and raise your prices. Which in turn raises the inflation rate. That's right. 
Think about it this way. Rising inflation indicates the economy might be producing above its potential. By contrast, a falling inflation rate suggests the opposite, that we're not using all of our resources. Another way to think about whether prices are rising is to take a look at the Employment Cost Index, which tells us how expensive workers are getting. In other words, how fast wages and benefits are rising. We're under our 10th and final indicator, the stock market. Am I right in predicting that this has something to do with expectations? Of course. Stock prices tell us a lot about what shareholders expect a company's future profits to be. A strong stock market suggests that traders are optimistic about how much profits businesses are going to make in the future. So you could say the stock market is a bit like a vote of confidence. Exactly. But be careful, because the stock market can be a bit flighty. One famous economist joked that the stock market has predicted nine of the last five recessions. And so now that we have these 10 indicators, where can we find them? I want to start looking at some graphs and charts and tables and see where the economy is heading. In a lot of countries, the central bank collects that data. Like in the United States, you can go to the St. Louis Fed's website, and they're going to give you easy access to a lot of these indicators. The OECD also collects a lot of these indicators for most countries. And so you could head over to the OECD's website and start looking up these data. Betsy, Justin, this is really handy. I'm definitely going to start tracking some of these numbers. Before we go, are there any tips or things we should bear in mind? Remember the big tip, which is track a lot of indicators, not just one or two. We've given you our favorite 10. You could think about whether you want to add a few, but remember, you need a lot. In reality, the Fed and other economic forecasters literally track thousands of indicators. A country's economy is large and complex, so you want to get as full a picture as you can. It's also best to focus on broad indicators, and by that I mean indicators that account for a really big share of the economy. It turns out it's really easy to measure the output of factories, so we have tons of measures of manufacturing, even though it's only a small share of the economy. If you really want to understand what's going on with people's lives, you're going to need to look at the entire economy at the same time. You also just want to pay attention to indicators that come out frequently and quickly, as that's what's going to keep you on top of where the economy's headed. And you want to realise that economic data are noisy. They can be all over the shop. And so it can be hard to figure out the signal or the underlying pattern. That's why it's often going to be helpful to average over a bunch of indicators or a bunch of months to see the underlying trends. Once you've been looking at indicators for a while, you're going to start to form some expectations about how you think the economy is doing. You know, that's why when you hear new data being released, It's often compared to expectations. Those are expectations of professional forecasters. When you're following data, you're going to come up with your own expectations. And so what you want to do is compare the numbers to your current expectations. So if the data come in stronger than what you were expecting? It's time to admit maybe you weren't right. Maybe the economy's doing better than you thought. And update. Update your expectations. That's the real trick at the end of thinking about how to use indicators is you have to use the indicators, form some expectations, update your expectations as new data come in, and you will become great at understanding where the economy is going. Now you've learned how to think like an economist. (laughs) Betsy, Justin, I'm going to go off and check out some of these indicators. 
Nats, I think business cycles seems like such a dry subject, but of course this is like the heart of people's lives. I mean, we started this episode by talking about how you got hammered by graduating into a recession and that's going to shape your entire life. Just like people who graduate into 2020, it's going to shape their entire life. So we study these business cycles so we can do what we can to moderate them because they do tend to hurt people. Thanks for listening. There's a lot more from this show and others like it on the Himalaya Learning Platform. Himalaya Learning provides bite-sized courses from world-class thinkers and industry experts for you to enjoy in the app, on the go. For exclusive content, including bonus episodes and supplemental materials, go to Himalaya.com econ and enter promo code econ at checkout for your first 14 days free. Himalaya.com slash econ has loads of great shows like ours, so try it out using the promo code econ at checkout to get your first 14 days free. It's time to think like an economist.